Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And for the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship at Vinh University in Hanoi, Vietnam. Tonight, please welcome best-selling author Joe Wheeler, author of Digital First Customer Experience. And I say tonight, I mean tonight in Hanoi, but... 12 o'clock noon uh, in most of the United States. Uh, so, Joe, welcome. And if you could, give us a little bit about your background. Great. Well, thanks, Mark. And it's a real honor to be on your uh, podcast. So, uh, Joe Wheeler, I um, uh, I started off working for a company called the Forum Corporation, Mark, that you may recall, John Humphrey's company. Um, in Boston, where I led product and marketing and shared services and ran their consulting business. And in 2002, Sean Smith and I wrote a book called Managing the Customer Experience, uh, which, you know, back 20 years ago, introduced things like touchline mapping and things like that, things that we think about today pretty traditionally as journey mapping, right? And then uh, I actually had a stint in financial services. So I went from there to Bank of America, where I was the quality executive for premier small business banking before I started the Service Profit Chain Institute with Earl Sasser, uh, Len Sessinger, and Jim Hess. CX Workout, which I sold uh, a couple of years ago, and then most recently uh, launched this new subsidiary called CX Digital while I uh, uh, wrote the, the Digital First Customer Experience. So why did you write this book? You know, it's a great it's a great question. I mean, there wasn't one single reason, but... You know, I guess like all of us, when we kind of came out of COVID and um, that whole experience, a colleague of mine at Kellogg, uh, Mohan Swani, wrote in a Forbes article, you know, it should be the aspiration of every company to deliver a touchless experience. And I thought, boy, that's good advice, you know, given what we all went through. But, you know, Mark, at the same time, I've opened every talk on customer experience with what Charlotte Beers once said, you know, the ch former chairman of Ogilvy. And she said, you know, the truth is what makes a brand powerful is the emotional involvement of customers. So it struck me as how do you reconcile these two statements? How do you create like emotional involvement at the same time, follow uh, Mohan's advice to kind of deliver a touchless experience? So this book is really an exploration of that because I asked the question, you know, has, has digital transformation come far enough that, you know, the level of emotional attachment that we would expect delivered often by frontline folks has achieved similar levels of advocacy. So that's sort of the main reason why I decided to go down this route. Uh, in the beginning of the book, you write about omni-channel world requires us to think beyond staging experiences to structuring emotional peaks across channels that finish with a strong, memorable ending, which you kind of alluded to in your first statement here. Please tell us about, about that and who does that well? Well, and I want to give credit to Richard Chase and uh, Shiram Dasu, who introduced this idea, it's like a behavioral science idea of staging customer experiences and finishing strong. And it's, it's known as kind of the peak end rule, right? But what's different, you know, when we used to think about staging, Mark, 
um, it was different when you and I just use one or two channels. You know, so for example, we had a client in the automotive retail business. You know, you pulled up with your car, you got your oil change, you took off. So we did work with them that was really helpful, that actually grew their same store sales by over 30% over two years. But it was straightforward. But today, you know, customers are on their mobile app. They're on a social channel. They kind of control the journey. And so it's harder to stage experiences since we're just so multi-channel. And it's more about structuring. And, you know, the ones that do it well, which I kind of feature in the book, are ones that understand pause and resume. You know, can you pause on the mobile app and then resume in the store without starting over? Um, they intentionally give customers control. So they don't leave it to chance. They're intentional about it. And then they personalize the experience in ways that are really relevant to the customer. And, you know, uh, one of the case studies of a company that does this really well is Semex, you know, the construction giant. I mean, they yeah. really figured out and they've won awards for this, their digital transformation effort, how to really give the customer choice and control and to structure, let them structure experiences that exceed expectations. And then, Mark, on the retail side, you know, it's hard to beat Ikea. I mean, these people are really smart in terms of how they design the mobile, the store, virtual experiences uh, that really do an amazing job of, of structuring experiences at great value for customers. Yeah, and, and Ikea is known for that. You write that in the book. You write that doing personalization well is tricky. What does it take to do it well and come across as authentic? I mean, I think that's one of the biggest problems. Yeah, it's a great question. We could spend the rest of this, our time together, just exploring that one, Mark. Um, but I think, you know, the, the when we looked at potential companies to feature around personalization, we looked at several. But, you know, at the end of the day, Spotify really sort of stands out from the crowd uh, because of a few things. But one of them is how they think about it um, differently than other organizations. And they really think about it beyond the next logical click. You know, they're not just looking. In fact, they describe it as the transition. You know, I think their words are really interesting from the attention account economy to the value economy. So what they're really working on with all their algorithms and their pretty sophisticated machine learning working behind the scenes is to, you know, not just recommend your old favorite, but to actually push you a little bit and to complement that to create what they call a healthy content diet. I mean, to me, that's really interesting. So they're driving towards, in fact, they did some research and what they found was recommendations that were um, most uh, helpful to customers. Uh, the most important attribute was relevance. Uh, and then it was it was it was just much more important than things like popularity and the diversity of, co of content mattered as well. So. Here's why this matters is if you can figure out how to do personalization in a way that's wildly relevant to me and drives this shift from just trying to get more attention to creating more value and thinking of, of, of lifetime of value you're delivering, you can start to see um, with that engagement, a positive flywheel effect. And that positive flywheel gets better and better over time. How do you get customers to feel ownership in online community to the point they're recruiting other members to join you? It's kind of like the holy grail for any company. Yeah, and we did some meta-analysis around this. And, you know, one of the things that, um, and the case study, which to me, Mark, is just a remarkable story. I don't even know if it's that well known outside of the enterprise software business, but VMware 
you know, their VM, their VMUG uh, user group really to me is extraordinary. But what the research says is people that get involved in online communities or customer communities generally and work with co-creation, typically there's three motivations. One is about knowledge acquisition. Um, so it's more about intrinsic motivations. And the second is to socialize with other users, obviously. Um, recognition was not a big deal, but what, one of the interesting things was they found that people that are more frequent contributors to co-creation activities tend to get more out of it. That's probably obvious, right? But it tends to create more kind of commitment to the group. And VMUG is a great example of that because one three things that VMware that I feature in the case did very differently than any other group that I ever looked at around building customer communities. One is they don't own it. Like VMUG sits as a separate company, Mark. They have their own PL, they manage their members. They have 150,000 members, I think, as of the writing. And um, even though VMware has two board seats and stays close to it and provides a lot of support, they really let the group run itself. But the power of it, I mean, it's pretty consistent with the research. People join VMUG because you know, that software is a little complicated. <laughs> you could use a little help to learn it and they provide tremendous support. But secondly, it really becomes something you need in the enterprise software business from a career development standpoint. So um, those are pretty good motivations to be part of such a group if that's your, you know, if that's your calling in life, obviously. Uh, in the book, you wrote about a common statistic that seven out of 10 customer experience initiatives fail but you said that could be avoidable by building a solid business case. What are the elements of a good business case and the three forms you mentioned that the business case will take that almost eliminate the potential for failure? You know, someday someone's going to call me out on that statistic. I've just never believed it. <laughs> just thought, boy, if that was the truth, we'd all be fired. And so it's not our experience. Like, you know, when you do see, as I say, when, when they go sideways, often it isn't that the business case you know, uh, wasn't well thought out. It just didn't exist. Like no one thought about it. They thought, well, let's move ahead. So we work hard with customers to really, in fact, there's a whole chapter dedicated to this. And there's five steps. One is I call the first step, validate the incremental value of uh, consistently exceeding customer expectations on key loyalty drivers. Because in the previous chapter, I talk about how to identify key loyalty drivers. But Mark, as you know, for any segment of customers, there'll be, you know, three to five, a handful of attributes that if you can really detect what they are, um, have a big impact on whether customers stay with you, whether they recommend, well, whether they buy more products, right? So step yeah. one is what are those drivers, those big ones? And then number two is to say, hey, if what's the difference between customers where we exceed expectations on those drivers versus ones that we're not? And then can we do some sensitivity analysis to figure out what are the touch points and interactions that influence that? Because if we can know the, the economic value of exceeding expectations on three to four drivers, and then understand in the journey, where do we really influence those? Then we can build a business case that says, hey, if we move the needle on these six or seven interactions and touch points, they'll influence these drivers, they'll drive more top box customers, people like promoters, and that should generate incremental revenue. The fourth thing, though, is to say, by the way, this journey allows us to take non-value-added costs. Once we really understand what customers care about, we can also look at the other side of the coin, which is, by the way, we deliver all the stuff that it turns out didn't really matter to them. So there's cost savings that come from taking non-value-added activities out. And in some cases, using digital to you know, change the channel mix to provide better customer experience at lower cost channels. And then the final set, Mark, as you would suspect, is you have to create an estimate 
of what it's going to cost to get there. So you have to actually do, I, I talk about three phases of the case, Mark. One is like the, the kind of the preliminary one where you're doing this work and estimating. Then once your CFO is kind of signed off on this, then you have to say, okay, what would it really cost? Let's go and figure that out. And that becomes your final business case that sets up kind of quarterly updates to that. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, because I think everybody needs to understand what the process really is to make that happen. Um, how do you pick the right leader? Is it industry knowledge, technical knowledge, skills, or what exactly should you be looking for for somebody to lead this kind of uh, uh, initiative? Yeah, great question. Well, in my experience, you know, it's it's there's probably five things, but one is it's a person who understands how to lead large-scale change, depending on the scope of the project, Mark, right? I mean, if it's a very narrow thing you're trying to improve, maybe after-sales support, that might be a different type of person. But if it's a larger project that you're really rethinking either the whole or parts of the experience, um, you know, someone who really understands large-scale change is important. A second one is one of the things we learned years ago at the Forum Corporation, we did some research into what made for effective project leaders. Uh, and it turns out kind of high performers, the only one thing distinguished high performers from moderate performers. And that was the high performers um, were better than any of their peers by actually getting and keeping stakeholder involvement. So it's one thing to get a lot of key stakeholders involved at the beginning and then run off. It's another thing to keep them with you through the entire life cycle of the project. And then the third thing, you know, my colleague David Rogers from Columbia, he's got a new book coming out, I encourage people to buy called the Digital Transformation Roadmap to follow up his previous one. He makes the point, you know, digital transformation is more about strategy than it is about technology, Mark. So someone who can connect the dots between the business model of the company and the improvements will make a big difference. Fourth, they have to live agile. I mean, Agile is here to stay. If you're not doing rapid experimentation and embracing Agile project management, you'll miss on this. And then the obvious one, Mark, which is just great listening skills, great interpersonal skills, builds trust, goes to conflict, isn't afraid of it, knows how to go through conflict. So the learnings come out of it, but um, but is able to kind of build a, a project based on transparency and inclusiveness. I think you're right about the, the understanding of the technology is probably at the bottom of the list. The most important thing is the communication and leadership skills, because I have a friend of mine who's a former Navy SEAL captain, and he works with technology companies improving the leadership skills of these people with great technical skills, but not the good interpersonal skills, yeah. the soft skills. You need to really make all that work. Um, how much work in advance should a customer do before looking for a technical development partner? Well, you know, obviously quite a bit. I mean, it depends, again, on the scope of the project, Mark. I mean, what's interesting, so here's an interesting case. That's at Semex, who um, is, a, I think, a great case study uh, in the book. Um, what they, they kind of did some things differently. One of the things they did was before they started even talking to customers, they benchmarked companies and technologies. So they looked not within their industry because there weren't great examples because that's an industry that had to improve productivity from digital for for 20 years, I think they've seen a 1% increase in productivity. So they looked at, you know, companies who were really like American Express's um, care centers, support centers, et cetera. And then once they really saw what was possible, 
um, they actually went to MIT for five days and they took their top 100 executives and just trained them. They went through learning on digital transformation, everything from blockchain to artificial intelligence, et cetera. And then they started to really understand customers. So they did. Um, so they have this great saying, they started off with a technology partner doing minimal viable products, Mark, which I know obviously you're yeah. deeply familiar with. And they realized when they got into this, it was like the wrong thing. Like what they weren't trying to do was deliver a minimal viable product. And they shifted to calling it a minimal lovable experience. So choosing the right partner really matters. Again, it, it depends on number one, what's the, what's the project? Number two, um, you know, do they bring both industry specific and outside your industry experience that can be relevant to what you're trying to get done, I think. Don't you also find that maybe this has improved, but it usually takes the technology people twice as long as they estimate. <laughs> yes, and that's true in the home renovation business as well, Mark. <laughs> yeah, it's always the case. And everybody <laughs> swears they're going to get it done in the timeline they gave you, but it never uh, works out that way. And of course, not always their fault because you start the client starts changing their mind about what they want. And that complicates it a bit. Um, what a customer is picking a partner to develop their customer experience, aside from experience with technology and industry, what should clients look for in, in a technical partner when they're making that selection? Well, you know, good question. One is one thing I will say is um, just on that last point is that I, I think well, well, I think what's interesting to me is. From a technology standpoint, taking long, like your point about that, one of the things Semex did, which really disrupted that problem, was they gave the head of technology um, the, the entire team that he needed. So, you know, in a typical company, you'll have IT, and then somewhere over there will be the design thinking people, and somewhere over there, they put all these groups under one person. And it's a global company, right? How you build UX in Israel will be very different than how you design UX in New York City. So you have to have a global team. So they had global teams working in three different locations from India, um, Mexico, obviously, and I forget the third. Um, but anyway, when you build that, you have to put this under one organization because then they, they kept on their milestones very clearly. They built Semexco in, in 24 months, which given the, the level of transformation mark, that's a pretty landmark, you know, using Agile to do it. But back to your question, I'd say there's three things. One is um, really making sure from um, a deliverable standpoint, <laughs> like you sign off when the deliverables are done. Number two is, Technology consultants are kind of famous for there's a sales team and then the delivery team is make sure that the people that you believe are being assigned to the project are in fact assigned to the project. And then, as I always say to clients, you know, read the small print around things like IP. <laughs> uh, that stuff is not to be going over lightly. Get your legal folks to go through those contracts to make sure uh, you own everything that you contract for. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and somebody really understands reading those kinds of contracts, not just right. a general business lawyer, because those are very complicated uh, to understand. I've been through that before. In your book, you talked about the customer needing to feel ownership when working on a project. You mentioned your daughters wanting to keep their build-a-bears, but giving away other stuffed animals when you move. 
Along those lines, you mentioned that concern of giving the customer too many choices, even though you want them to feel some ownership. What's the right mix? How do you pull it off and who do you see that does it really well? Yeah. So, um, you know, just a shout out to a colleague of mine, Melina Palmer, who's a behavioral scientist. She runs the the Brainy Business podcast. You might have um, you might be familiar with her, but this is what they call choice architecture, right? So it's in in 2023. This has never been more important to understand. Uh, but there's three things that really help making sure you avoid what they call uh, choice overload, right? One is giving the customer control over over kind of the, the level of choice. So it's one thing to give customers a sense of choice. It's another thing is just to control what they can choose and allow them to back out of it, right? And then the second thing is the ability to um, have progress clues. We're all used to this, right? When we go through surveys or whatever, letting customers know where they are along a specific journey uh, and how much time is left or what's what else is going. And then the third thing, obviously, is the degree to which you can build in other customers' experience, like when you're on TripAdvisor, you can see other people like this restaurant, other people didn't. So this notion of being able to manage and design a choice architecture, it links to your first question about structuring experiences that end on a positive note. Um, there's just a ton. So you, you, know, you don't have to be a psychologist to figure out, but it's good to be a student of behavioral science in 2023, I find. Yeah, does providing the right client customer input to feeling a sense of ownership and connection differ from B2B, B2C, industry, age, gender, economic status? And if so, do you need a psychologist or someone to provide the right input to make these various groups happy? Well, is there anyone that doesn't need a psychologist these days, Mark? <laughs> yeah, of course. We all have one, like golf pros. <laughs> well, of course, there's lots of differences between B2B and B2C. Um, but again, I, I guess I've never, you've ne- you never get lost by going back to your customers. Now, you know, quickly, people on your podcast here will say, well, wait a second, customers can't always tell you what they need. You need to innovate, you know, separately as well. And that is true. But I found when you go deep and understand, we did a benchmarking visit to Toyota many years ago. And one of the things that we learned from that group was um, they have a, a term called profound knowledge, and it has a lot of meaning at Toyota. It means uh, going past just cursory data about what customers care about and really understanding the voice of the customer. Like, And I think this is well-documented case study, Mark. Toyota sent engineers to, go to uh, live in the United States for six months to live with families um, to understand the culture before they introduced the Lexus brand. And so they noticed that when they would sit in at North American living rooms, their couches were really soft compared to what existed in Japan. That's profound knowledge. Like that's really trying to understand the customer's experience in a very deep way. And I find when we work with clients that understand that and 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 do that, like into it, um, you don't need psychologists. You need just really people who are a customer obsessed, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, Procter & Gamble has done that right for like 100 oh, years, right? Absolutely. I mean, they were the people who were the expert in that area, and that's what made them such a, a global mega company. A uh, question from the audience. Do you think that the smaller the company, the more difficult it is to come up with more straightforward UX? Do you think there should be a critical mass in terms of number of customers to have a meaningful map of UX? Oh, that's a great question. Um, 
I, I guess I'd say no. I don't think do you think the smaller the company, the more difficult to come up with a more? So, so what I'm hearing in the question mark is, is having like a broader base of customers. So I think this comes back to who you decide to serve and who you decide not to serve. Like when we built our CX digital software a couple of years ago, uh, we had what we called lead users. So these were right from our target customer base, six companies and people doing customer experience during mapping work that we could generate code, have them hit it, come back, give us feedback. Um, and I think the trick here is picking the right lead users to give you feedback, you know, and using good software like user tests and things like that to give you that feedback. Um, and then, but to do it in, 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 like to use agile methods to be able to get that feedback and be able to test it and be able to then incorporate that feedback right away with other tools. So there are some really good tools uh, that allows you to automate these types of things. Um, but I guess it all comes back to how big is the user base? Are you narrow? Are you focusing on one type of customer or one segment of customers? Is it a broad consumer-based product? In that case, you do want to reach out to some of the larger market research companies to, to get some help with that. But Mark, you're an expert in this area. What's your thought about that? You know, you've answered it better than I could possibly answer it. So I, I would go along with what you just said. Okay. Yeah, I don't think I could add more to the, than that. Um, you write, avoid designing experiences that customers don't value by applying proven qualitative and quantitative methods to separate the signals from the noise and identify moments of truth for exceeding expectations that will earn you long-lasting loyalty and advocacy. What are you talking about? And can you give us an example? Sure, sure. So as I said earlier, around the around building a business case, you know, I've never not seen it where you can identify three to five loyalty drivers that that influence advocacy. Um, and we so we had this great client in the home services business, for example, and they um, one of the first things we did, they had collect MPS data. So they said, Joe, why doesn't your team look at our MPS data and see what you can see in that? They'd already collected it, didn't cost anything. I just had my analysts go through and kind of use our text and analyst tools and other things to pull out insights. And, you know, what we found from that, we reported to the executive team was that, you know, price was a really important attribute. And uh, the CEO was ready to launch a price war. He's like, give me that report. <laughs> We're going to go meet with the pricing team and figure this out. And I said, well, just slow down. Like, let us finish the quantitative. So we finished the quantitative. And what we found from the responses of over 1,700 of his customers, which was a really robust sample, a uh, very low margin of error given the sample size, was price, well, we call it value. It did matter, but it was like fifth. Number one was something else. Number two was on time, et cetera. But when you blew the first two, if you got the first two wrong, price rose to the top, which is why we were seeing it in that detract, what we call the detractor study. So that's just an example of why it, it matters so much to do um, qualitative research that really directionally gives you the ideas about what you want to test uh, for uh, causal relationships, but then to validate that before you build that um, that that final business case, obviously a preliminary business case, to make sure if you move the needles on these things, it would make a big difference. Yeah, because a lot of times a lot of money is spent on things that they haven't proven that it would move, but it's just a hunch on their part and they put a lot of money toward it. In the book, uh, you <clears throat> in the book, you said that B2B uh, world peer, peer influencing behaviors shape customer interest 
and participating in value co-creation. How does that work and what expertise do these people have that you will that you could find useful to get good results? Um yeah, so you know, coming back to the V mug, what's really interesting to me around that mark is the degree to which I mean, think about it for a second. If you can Jim and I and Earl in our last book, The Ownership Quotient, we wrote a chapter called Put Your Best Customers to Work. You know, so if there's a way that you can engage customers such that they become almost your product development team. You know, I keep I mean, um, um okay, their name escapes me for some reason. It'll come back to me. But the degree to which you can have customers be an extended uh, group of product developers uh, really can reduce costs, reduce cycle time, all those types of things. And it seems to me from the research we looked at and studying this best practice companies is it starts with obviously creating a value proposition. Like people do these things because there's something in it for them. Number two is I think it's less about recognition and more about them feeling like they're making a contribution to something greater than themselves, quite honestly. And then the third piece of this is making it easy. You know, people will participate in online communities and things like that if it isn't a lot of work. A colleague of mine, Diane Hessen, uh, founded an important company called C-Space. And, you know, what C-Space will tell you a little bit about, about their experience with customers is that people, you know, sometimes it starts off with an incentive. And that might get them involved at the beginning, but it quickly disappears. And people are in it because they feel like they're making a difference. And I think we all care about that, right, Mark? Like knowing that you're going to have some impact on a future product for a brand that you do care about. There's probably a level of threshold that you need to care about that brand. Uh, people get people will get behind such an effort. Internally, though, who's typically left out in developing these cases and working on the project that you think should be involved. Mm, yeah, finance <laughs> always. I always have to make sure finance, even when it's like, oh, did, did someone forget to bring Mark? <laughs> it's like, well, let's get Mark to the next meeting because you have to have your finance partners at the table from the very beginning because there will be a point in time, and there always is, when the general manager or whoever your customer is says, well, um, okay, we've got to assign a resource to work with you to do the attribution of the, the dollars to these uh, more profitable customer relationships. You want that person to shape that work with you at the beginning. So finance is typically left out. A few years ago, Mark, I would have said IT, but I don't think so anymore because in a digital first world, you know, the reason why I call this book digital first, by the way, it's not because people are second. People are always first. But the point is, the way we all experience brands, for the most part, begins digitally. You know, Google reports 86% of customers visit a retailer's website before they even walk in the store. Or You know, so, so the idea here is, is to make sure that folks that would be not part of this experience early on, to be inclusive, to bring them to the planning table, because you will need them later on. How much um, how much prep do you do with your clients, like getting them up to speed on what this is really going to take, how much time they're going to have to invest before you actually do the project? Because I think people are always surprised at how much of a time suck any of these things are going to be. So how do you prepare them for that so they can adjust their own schedules as well and not be stressed out, not deliver what they're supposed to deliver on the other parts of what they're responsible for? Yeah. Well, Mark, I'll share my secret sauce on this. Okay, ready? <laughs> so I'm writing it down. 
one of the things that really worked well. And um, so before before we launched the Service Profit Chain Institute, I would work with Professor Heskett and and Earl Sasser and that team. We would bring clients to Harvard Business School and um, and and you know, they would teach the, the case study and people get excited about that. So there's three things that I've learned that, because the because what's really behind your question is, how do you get the executive team really engaged here? How do you right. make sure that they're not just committed, but they're involved? Because, you know, that old saying about the, the pig and the chicken, the, yeah. you know, right, right. So um, what we learned was start off with collecting a little bit of data. It doesn't have to be you know, Gallup level, perfect data, just get some directional data around employees, customers, and shareholders. And if you can start to make that link, we called it the service profit chain, and start to build a preliminary case study that says, hey, we think there's something here. If there were parts of the employee experience that impact the customer experience, and we could actually prove that, would that be of interest? So start to build just a simple case that you socialize, and then do a little bit of executive education with this team. And it doesn't have to be a lot. But get them involved in understanding how a business team who is outperforming them is performing. And so we've done, you know, site visits to the Ritz-Carlton Hotels, for example, site visits to FedEx. It, and there's ways to do that with digital technology now that doesn't require executives to fly to a different city for two days. Um, but, you know, show them a team, not in the same industry, but a similar one that is actually skating harder, checking harder and scoring more. And then the third piece of this is to really um, uh, start to build their balance scorecard. Executives love measurement, right? And so the more you start to introduce some different KPIs that link those three things based on that original data, then they tend to really get interested. So number one, let me just summarize. Number one is um, do a little bit of data collection, just enough to get people's the executives' attention. Two, do some education that's very targeted, that compares to a high-performing team that kind of gets their competitive juices going. And then um, uh, three, go into some detail in terms of uh, really understanding how you can actually bring this to life through measures. You know, we call it a, a balanced scorecard or a diamond scorecard that they can get behind. I don't know if that's helpful to your listeners, Mark, but that's uh, that's something I've learned over the years. <laughs> yeah, that's why I asked that question. So you can give them insight about what it really is going to take to prepare them. <clears throat> you write about the value of rituals and how that can connect you with your clients and clients with your other customers. Please tell us about the importance of rituals and how that works in connecting customers and the three elements that make this work along with how Starbucks uses this to their advantage. You had a good example in the book. Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked that question because I feel like, you know, um, I feel like marketers, not all, but many of them kind of misunderstand rituals. Like they, it's sort of the holy grail of like, you know, apply, rinse and repeat. But, you know, that's a habit, right? When you and I get up in the morning, whatever your routine is, I'm sure it's different than mine, but that's a habit. A ritual is different because a ritual has emotional connection. So what smart people that have looked into this closely describe as sort of these three processes. One is around emotional regulation. So, um, you know, so for people like my daughter, who we were talking about earlier, who is an opera singer, before she goes on stage, she has a ritual and it's a rigid physical thing, obviously warming up, but also there's some things she goes through. That's that's kind of an, an important part of what make something a ritual versus a habit. And then the second thing is a goal, you know, uh, what they call goal regulation, which is basically before often, you know, teams will um, 
I've heard of teams that will walk a, uh, the football field before they, before the game, you know, oh, sort yeah. of a ritual they go through just to really see every part of the 10 yard line and et cetera, and to visualize, you know, how they'll perform. And then there's the social piece, right. It's being seen with others and collaborating with others. And so, so rituals are powerful. Habits are powerful too, but rituals really, if you can crack that code, then you do build a, a kind of an engagement flywheel that we talked about earlier, Mark. But um, Starbucks is the case study on that because there's it's it's hard to point to customers that, or companies that don't understand the power of ritual. I mean, think about it. When you enter Starbucks, it's the smell, right, of that coffee. It's the uh, interaction with your barista, which gets to the potentially the social piece of this. Um, you know, some people, it's their ritual before they go into the work in the morning, right? So it's like just before you're performing your job or maybe it's the end of the day. Um, and so so understanding ritual. Now, here's what's exciting is the reason Starbucks is a great example is because uh, it connects employee experience, partner, what they call partners, with the customer experience. So, you know, it's really powerful when you can make that connection uh, to be able to create a ritual that employees and customers share in, you know, that's builds a customer for life, I would argue. You know, I wondered why it didn't work for them in the tea business. They did exactly the same model, but it didn't work in tea. Why, why do you think that is? You know, it's a great question. I didn't explore that terribly well, but, you know, it's one of these things. I remember uh, many years ago, I lived 500 yards from a terrific company called Talbots, you know, the retailer. And yeah. the former CEO there decided to get into menswear. And I remember sending him a note saying, I don't know. I don't think that's going to be a winner. Like, you know, my wife loves your products. I don't know if I would go buy a suit just because it just felt like I think some companies, Mark, they make a mistake around. There's a great article I'll send to you when we're done this um, podcast uh, by some folks that looked at, you know, when is a brand adjacency available to you and when is it too far of a stretch? And I don't know the answer to your question. It's a great one. But I just suspect tea drinkers maybe are different than coffee drinkers. And um, Talbot's found that. They, they, you know, they began the men's business and they closed it quickly, wisely, because uh, they couldn't get this in the scale. Um, it may be the same case. Uh, look, all, <clears throat> the uh, Wall Street Journal just did a feature on all birds. And once they strayed out of it, but you can't blame them. They feel like they topped out. For revenue, I'm sure the guy from Talbots thought we need to find another line of revenue. It's not that they weren't, <clears throat> they didn't hire the smartest people, not that they're not the smartest. They just felt that was worth the risk of trying. And like you said, they found out quickly it wasn't working. And Allbirds has found the same thing, that they have a good thing with the shoes, but they haven't been able to expand outside the shoe business. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's back to profound knowledge, what we learned from Toyota. You know, it turns out we did a little work in the pet retail business. It turns out cat owners shop up a pet store very different than dog owners. Who knew? You would think it'd be pretty much the same. They're very different. So you just have to have a lot of humility around your customers and thinking you understand, you know, and, but this is what's powerful today because digital provides channels. I'm going to do a, I'm doing a series of articles right now, as you know, Mark, one of them that's coming up is this question of, do we really need to ask customers how happy they are? <laughs> because they give us a lot of digital clues and we could probably infer quite a bit from just what they're telling us with their behaviors. No question. We have a question from the audience. Can you please explain on, on how daily or seasonal rituals could be used to build a better UX? You've got a tough audience here, Mark. That's a great question. Um, well, we'll understand, as, as I'm sure um, 
your participant knows, Starbucks is now moving into figuring out the digital third place mark. So, you know, they've, they've had the third place between work and home. Um, and now they're trying to figure out this, um, this loyalty program called Odyssey, which provides their customers with like pretty cool artifacts. So on March 9th, they did their first uh, drop of um, what they, these, these NFTs, these stamps, they priced them at like a hundred dollars. Um, they had, I'll get the numbers wrong because I haven't committed the memory. I think they had like 3 million show up. It actually brought down their website for some period of time. Um, so this isn't directly answering your question about CX. I think the question, I think the answer to that though, is the degree to which you can build UX that does those three things that speaks to some kind of steps or process that, that helps me manage my emotional state that maybe is something that kind of helps me before I'm about to perform something or create some kind of social engagement uh, that's meaningful to me. The whole point about rituals is 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 more than a habit because they're 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 close, but they're not the same. Is to is to make sure that it's meaningful to your customers, and if there's a way to connect that through your frontline employees or to some aspect of your business that is a shared ritual then that's when it becomes powerful. And that's why Starbucks is great, a great case. I don't have a great answer for this excellent question, Mark, but I think it has something to do with how you build CX that creates emotional engagement then versus just a transactional type of next step in the process. Uh, I'm living, as I mentioned early, in Hanoi, Vietnam, and I noticed that many companies, especially consumer-focused, don't have websites but rely on Facebook pages to market and sell product. I never saw very much of that in the U.S., but it's quite common in Asia. What's the future of websites and will they ever become more dynamic to where they are the primary motivator for selling products and services over social media and other tools? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, um, well, a couple of things. One is my friend Deb right here. So I'm going to kind of show my screen. I don't know if you know this book, uh, Next Generation Retail. This is by uh, Deborah Wainswig. She's the CEO of a company called, um, I guess I should be selling my own book and not someone else's, right? Mark? But <laughs> This one is such a good read. It's not funny. Her and Renee Hartman. And she talks a lot about the answer to this question. Um, so with respect to, yes, I think two two answers. One is, you know, one of the chapters I write in the book is the three C's, you know, the convergence of technology. And I think once latency starts to become so low, as we start to see 6G networks, especially edge-based computing and application networks really kind of converge together, um, what you'll be able to design, and all the UX folks on the call today here understand this, will be very different. There'll be very immersive experience you can build into a website uh, that, that I don't think would be available to you with just a Facebook page. So I would, I'm guessing, I don't have facts about this, Mark, but I'm guessing you would see more of those folks moving to uh, being able to um, obviously keep their Facebook page, but also complement that with a with an organic website that leads there, because I think they'll be able to sign UX is pretty compelling. Um, but the second thing that she talks about for retailers, at least, is kind of this growth in live streaming that drives conversions. And so uh, this is more popular in, in your part of the world right now than it is in America. Yeah, uh, but but in Asia Pacific, live streaming and like you know selling in real time with live streams is like very popular in Asia Pacific right now. So that might be uh, one of the answers. Uh, question from the audience: Why are Facebook pages uh, custom in Asian markets? I have no idea, Mark. Do you know the answer to that? You know, uh, 
I really don't know the answer. I mean, I've asked people that and they just said, you know, it's very easy to put up. They, Facebook allows you to take credit cards now. I mean, yeah. and you have such a, a large community that you can draw from, unlike in a website where you have to do the push out there. So they feel like you can have uh, really good organic marketing uh, from Facebook, where when you put out that your friends are automatically sending likes and shares, where they can't do that with your website. Yeah, yeah. So that's what, that's what I've heard people say. So, but it was new to me. I had not seen us in the United States using Facebook in that way, except to maybe you know advertise a specific product, but not not have a website and, and totally focus your online presence on Facebook. Well, and Mark, as you know, because you're an international, um, the world is so different. You know, like I always I think about the power. So, for example, in Singapore, as you know, they have this this authority, this digital capability that creates identity across the whole country. And it makes like logging in and things like that. Like just the Internet is so different in every part of the world um, that uh, it, it's interesting to, to, to actually even explore this. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me that for a long time, Friendster uh, was incredibly popular in Asia and nowhere else. <laughs> That's a word I haven't heard in a long time. Yeah, like you can understand Facebook and MySpace, but <laughs> Friendster somehow hung on for quite some time in Asia before they got displaced. Uh, what new tools and applications should companies that rely on their website to sell be thinking of taking advantage of? Um, well, live streaming, and Deborah does a great job. The thing that we use quite a bit, and you might be familiar with it, Mark, is a company called Remesh. We use that a lot. What I like about Remesh, and again, it's not something you use on your website. It's a research tool. But I like Remesh because we can bring, you know, 500, uh, 600 customers um, online at the same time. We can ask them questions, and it uses um, artificial intelligence and machine learning to be able to categorize their comments and see rank order responses. So Mark, you and I could say, you know, what's important around XYZ to you? And you could see, and you could sort of by segment, the rank order responses in terms of variation, or I should say uh, mean and variation uh, variance. Um, so that's very helpful because it allows us to do kind of a quantitative level insight with a qualitative tool. A second one, and full transparency, we have a partnership with Genesis. So we love their pointless tool because pointless captures the digital breadcrumbs, you know, of a customer in a way that's permission-based, uh, but really gives us insight into, you know, why is why are such a large group of customers struggling to go from their mobile app into being successful at paying their bill? Um, that stuff's available to you. You just have to have technology that actually surfaces that, and it allows you to kind of see the friction in a digital journey and take action to reduce that friction. Yeah, I, I was trying to look up right now while you were saying that about. Uh, rematch uh, to look them up. So I'll have to get that from you. I Another will. Question. It's R-E-M-E-S-H dot A-I. And then it's the, the product is called Pointlist. Um, so it's rated by Forrester. It's one of the top journey optimization, journey management platforms um, that, uh, that just does a great job. And respell that again? Uh, Pointlist, just like the art. No, uh, Rematch. <laughs> Oh, Remesh, R-E-M-E-S, R-E-M-E-S-H. Okay, totally different. Um, question from the audience. What's the name of the Genesis product? 
Yeah, that's called pointillist, just like the artist. <laughs> okay, super. Um, what are the common mistakes to avoid as you don't want to waste money, time, and damage possibly ruining client-customer relationships? Mm, yeah, so great question. So one is, um, I'll just give you four ideas, okay? One is erring on uh, in to to erring on not being inclusive enough. Like it's, it's very tempting, right? Because it's much easier to manage just a small group. But the truth is, you got to really get people involved, as we talked about, bring the finance team involved early on, things like that. Um, the second thing is to make sure you break the elephant into some parts before you put it back in together. Clients always struggle with this, Mark, because they think, oh, gosh. But, you know, once you, especially a big experience project, you have to break that down because it's just too much to try to take in. So you break it down and you just have to have faith. It'll come together. And so I'll give you an example. We did this thing in a health insurance company. And um, I think I have the record for the largest journey mapping um, session ever facilitated. It had 92% participants. You know, that's like the biggest, <laughs> biggest I've ever been involved in. It took two and a half days. But at the end of the two and a half days, Mark, there's a magic moment when you do this kind of work. And on the wall is the entire journey. But you had to break up into small groups to get it done. And then you see it. like, And then those loyalty drivers that are sort of behind the charts that are in customers' behaviors starts to pop in the map. So one is break the elephant down before you pull it together, knowing it will come back together. The last two, if you're getting pushback, you're on the right track. If you're getting pushback, you're on the right track. So when conflict comes up and people disagree with you, welcome it. You know, David Kearns from Xerox used to say, he goes, you know, I, um, uh, I, I, I can't handle cynicism, but I welcome skepticism. So go to conflict. Don't uh, harness it to your benefit. And finally, you know, the truth is when these things work well, it's because of iteration after iteration after iteration. There's a great little, it's not a case study in the book, but I use the example of Intuit. When they came into India, um, they set a goal to increase the incomes of agricultural and this farming community by 5%. Think about that. Their goal wasn't to grow Intuit market share by 10%. It was to say, how do we improve the lives of these people? And that and 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 what they did was very low cost, rapid experimentation um, to be able to create a, a, a platform that would allow them to have price transparency in selling grains at these local markets. So iterate, 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 and based on customer behavior change, not just answers to a stated survey. Um, we have a question from the audience. What's the easiest way for a prospect to make a purchase or get to know the company? My company? Uh, or, no, your clients, you know, like your own company. Like if, if I was, do, you know, developing a, a website to sell a product or or whatever oh, that okay. may be. Uh, well, you know, I would say the uh, obviously, you know, things like, you know, free trials. One of the things that, that is interesting about the Spotify case study, Mark, that you might have read was what makes Spotify successful um, is what they call their core foundation. And that includes ubiquity, like the thing is on everything. I mean, Mark, if this coffee cup had a Wi-Fi link, you could stream Spotify on it. So one yeah, is right. ubiquity, right? Number two is uh, freemium. So letting them, because if you, when you sign up for Spotify, you get everything I get as a premium member. The only difference is you have to listen to some advertising. So, but as long as you're willing to do that, you get the entire library of music and podcasts and stuff like that. Um, and then um, the, 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 
So those two things really help with conversions, obviously, being everywhere premium. And then third piece is personalization. You know, there's read a witch, and they're marvelous at this, is to be able to make recommendations that are really relevant to me to keep me coming back to create engagement versus just getting another sale. How is AI and chat GBT impacting digital marketing and customer service? I know you got me being besieged with that question, but I had to ask it. Yeah, you know, I just um, I just reposted. So I'm going to be on a, a podcast called uh, Reinventing the Customer Experience with Arun and Kopi from ZS Associates, really impressive company. And those folks, he just, um, Arun just published an article about uh, large language models. I encourage anyone who follows me to read this article because they obviously go into some real depth on these types of things. Um, but I guess I'd say two things. One is... Um, what I learned from Lemonade and Nike and these companies around this question is that at the end of the day, AI only makes sense based on the data it's using. I mean, you know this obviously as well, Mark, right? All your users know this. So the degree to which these large language models are pulling on data that creates various results uh, it's not helpful. So you might have seen the 60 Minutes when Leslie Stahl <laughs> was talking to the president of Microsoft about this and one of their technology um, engineers was showing Leslie, you know, um, chat GPT. And, and um, it said, oh, Leslie Stahl worked at, I'll get this wrong, so apologize, for 20 years. And, yeah. uh, and Leslie Stahl said, no, that's not right. And the, the person said, well, it doesn't really, you know, she kind of punted a bit. Leslie said, yeah, but CBS cares. <laughs> I uh -huh. was there for 20 years. So yeah. here's my point. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Do you know what I mean? Like, don't mistake what you see in the news about these things for what I saw at these companies, which is machine learning, like well-designed machine learning platforms with domain-specific data that is taking points of margin out of their PL. Like Lemonade, 86% of their marketing spend is based on what they call LTV6, their sixth generation of their lifetime value model. Um, you know, Spotify uses machine learning to literally drive the recommendation action, but to also drive their own lifetime value model. So um, I don't know, I'm kind of rambling on answering your question. I guess my point about this is there's a ton of value in this fourth level of, of artificial intelligence, which will emerge. Um, last thing I'll say about this is, is I started to work with a company called Excel Technologies. And what they do is they build AI to make call center managers or call center agents more productive, really powerful, because it means they can improve first call resolution, provide more value to customers, and really help all their call center reps become high performers, you know? So um, there's different applications of AI on the service front that will make a big difference. And I think it starts with really understanding, you know, how do we do it in a way that helps scale good emotional outcomes that are domain specific and use technology in a way that um, is just more intelligent than maybe some of the news articles have have shared, if that makes sense. Uh, what kinds of skills will leaders need to provide an authentic connection with customers considering the human element is quickly disappearing because of AI and a company's refusal to use the phone for customers to speak to a live human being? Do you think that, well, I'm not sure that's true, Mark. I mean, I think what I noticed was was for those, uh, for the companies in our study, like Lemonade, for example, is very mobile first, very digital. When you put in a claim, uh, about a third of the time, they'll handle the whole thing in about two minutes. 
And then they say, hey, Mark, you know, did you upload a police report or can you upload a picture of the invoice, whatever? And then probably about a minute later, AI Jim, their bot will say, hey, Mark, it's approved. Money's in your bank account. Now, two thirds of the time, that probably doesn't happen, right? Because it's an insurance business and there is fraud and things like that. And there is a little bit more data. At the same time, when they're what, who they call a maker, a claim specialist gets your case, they're they're front end loaded with all that data that that was collected, right? So in 14 questions, Lemonade's bot called Maya, um, they she accesses 1,700 data points in giving you a price on your insurance quote. I mean, to me, that's pretty remarkable, right? But machine learning does that. That's not a hard thing for computers. So a long way, long way of saying that I think that. Um, we will learn more. I say in the book, you know, when things like just walk out technology become more adopted, the the line between um, uh, digital doesn't blur; it disappears. And I think we're starting to see that. We'll we'll try to figure out how the human uh, t- digital um, merging happens in that McKinsey article I shared with you earlier. Uh, but I think that's the conversation we need to have, and I think it should be robust. And I think we should all disagree and then and get into it. <laughs> So here's my last question for you. With customers fighting against giving more information to companies for fear that their information isn't being used for just customizing a product or service for them, but being used to sell them things they don't want and encourage more companies to pester them 24-7, what (laughs) changes do you see coming? Well, I'm not an expert on privacy, but it's a great question, Mark. It's a good one to end on because I think the promise of Web3, in fact, I just, uh, as you know, I have a post, uh, an article right now called Will Web Web3 Change Everything? And, you know, the promise of Web3 is de- decentralization. So you'll have direct connection between people and machines, you know, or their avatars and machines. Um, and you'll have like trustless peer-based networks. So with that, you could argue, you know, will people be brokers of their own data? That, that could actually happen. You know, there are people that have a strong point of view about this. I don't have one. I just, what I believe is that, I don't think Web3 alone will change everything. I think this combination of Web3 and what the semantic version of the internet will do um, in combination with edge-based computing, application networks, conversational AI, like we've just been talking about, and then around the whole thing. And 6G isn't around the corner. It's going to take a while to come. But Mark, let's remember, like, so they're testing 6G in Austin, Texas right now and other parts of the world, obviously. Of any of your, I'll send you um, an article after this, for any of your, your listeners that are interested in learning more about 6G and its applications, I have a great article I'll share with you, written by these Europeans. Um, and long story short, I think when that starts, starts to happen, data privacy will become obviously more important, and there, there could be that opportunity. I guess there is one more question here, and this <laughs> is good for you. Uh, are you planning to record an audio version of your recent book? You know, I'm so glad that, Sam, thanks for asking that question. I don't know. The uh, publishers are in charge of all that stuff. When you, you when, when we write a book, you do your best, and then the publisher manages. I'm quite sure they're planning to do that. I would love for it to be on Spotify, given it's a case study uh, that we feature. I just don't know what the timing will be. But I will find out, um, uh, Mark, and I'll get back to you on that, okay? Sounds like a plan. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. And, uh, Joe, it was a pleasure, and I really loved your book. And I think uh, you gave a very insightful interview. So thanks again. And I hope everybody has a wonderful weekend. I'll look forward to seeing you all next Friday. Thanks so much, Mark. Just a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Have a great uh, evening. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. 
Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.